We've been journeying through our core values here at Central Heights, and today we arrive at passionate worship. So I guess it seems fitting that the pastor of worship is talking about this today. You know, (laughs) guest speakers have remarked as they've come and been here that there is something different about the way that we gather here on a Sunday morning. There's a freedom that is growing. I don't know if you sense that, but as we gather to worship in song, it seems like there's just an anticipation of what God is doing, and there's this hunger for more. And in fact, even at our young adults retreat last weekend, the guest speaker there thought, is this, he said, is this always what goes on? Because if it is, I want to be a part of that. Maybe I should check out a Mennonite church. (laughs) We thought, yeah, that'd be good. I love what God is doing, and I commend you individually and corporately for the ways that you are passionate about your worship to God. To worship is human. We all have this hunger, this desire to pursue something that matters and to live a life that counts. You know, when I was a teen, I used to play games at parties, especially when I didn't know people very well. I played this game. I would find somebody that was practically a random stranger, and I would start asking them questions. And I would try to narrow down what their passion was. It was really fun, maybe kind of sneaky, but it was incredible how long some people would talk about one thing. Have you ever done that? Maybe you should try it sometime. It's actually so fun. You see, we're all passionate about something, and we all have an ultimate love to worship is human. It's that thing or person or lifestyle that we pursue, we adore, we glory in. I've got the definition of passionate. It's an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. We're all passionate about something, and it, it's reflected in the way we spend our time and our energy and our resources. It's what we speak about. For some of us in the room, it might be a new car, or a new guitar, or our ultimate frisbee game, or our kids, or our grandkids, or our career, our next holiday adventure, or even our favorite hockey team. Oh, sorry, Oilers fans, notably Cam, sorry. Um, There's a great book that our worship leaders have been reading through, and it's called You Are What You Love, and it talks about the spiritual power of habit. Jesus isn't a teacher who forms just our intellect, but he forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into our mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your your loves, your longings. So what do you love? What do you talk about? I believe our definition of worship is sometimes very narrow. We think of it as a song or two and a half hours on a Sunday morning. But I would love for us to broaden this idea of what is worship in response to an all-powerful God who sent his son Jesus on the cross to die for us. Worship is so much more than just singing. It's the way you live every day because it's a response to this gospel. It's your honesty with your taxes or if you're in school on your exams. It's your generosity with hospitality and your tithing and your tipping. Yes, even your tipping. It's the way you talk with your coworkers when no one's around. And it's the way you treat those in authority, even your parents, even your mother. By the way, happy Mother's Day. 
And so worship is ascribing this worth to someone, this feeling of expression, of reverence. And it's our response to God who is faithful in all seasons. And because he is faithful in all seasons, so our worship must be faithful in all seasons. Now, all of us are going through different things at different times. Take a day like for today, for example. For some of you, this is an exciting day where you are celebrated or you celebrate your mom, hopefully. But for others, there's grief as there is a broken relationship or like myself, you might have lost your mom and longed to be with her. Or for those of you that would love to have kids but haven't been able to or have chosen otherwise. And so you see, worship has to be more than just what we're feeling and just the day. And so my prayer for all of us today is that God would broaden our view of worship, that whether you're here and you feel so alive and so full of joy and so close to God, or whether you feel far and dry and distant or anywhere in that spectrum, that today God would show you through his word how you are invited And he would show you how you can discover how he longs to satisfy your thirst. And that you would become a true worshiper that carries his spirit into the world as a worshiper and brings life and healing and flourishing to the world around us. So would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for you are the one who has initiated worship with us. We long to know you more, so would you speak to us through this text? Would you give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you and hearts to follow you today, God? Amen. Well, there are so many passages on worship, so many we could pick through. I mean, you could just start to flow through these pages and you could find a lot. But there's one today that we're going to look at, and it's listed on our core values, and it's from the Gospel of John. And I believe there's something that God wants to show us in this passage today, something for each of us. You see, John's gospel is known to be deep enough for an elephant to swim in and shallow enough for a child not to drown. And so if that's true, there must be something in this chapter for each one of us today. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, and they say that it is known that they give us a kind of series of pictures on who Jesus is, but John's gospel is known to be this portrait, this in-depth look at who God is. And a lot of what we know about him comes comes through encounters that he had with people. The gospel of John starts with, in the beginning. Remind you of something? And then in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt, or literally, tabernacled among us. I love the message version because it says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So there's a sense that this is close, that God is close with us. And if we think of Israel and this presence that would be on top of the the holy place where they had met God, now it is found in Jesus. In chapter 2, Jesus enters the temple and he has a conversation with the Jews and he is not pleased with their worship. And he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they're like, "Uh, excuse me, what? Not possible. Do you know how long this took to build? And he's like, okay guys, I'm talking about my body. They didn't know that. They weren't aware of that. 
And so unique to the Gospel of John, now we land in this chapter 4, where Jesus comes to meet a woman at a well. Maybe you're familiar with the story, maybe you aren't, but we're going to read it together and discover some beautiful things about Jesus in this passage. So from John 4, if you want to turn there with me, we're going to start in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's a practical lady. I like that. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is now not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him, worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so our, my first point this morning is we are invited. There's a show going on around these days, and it's about Sherlock, and it's based off an old British author. It's kind of fun because this character is pretty genius. Sherlock is called in to solve incredible crimes and what Sherlock has the ability to do is to take a quick snapshot of somebody and tell you way more than meets the eye. He can say, mm, she has five cats, she slept at the office last night, she didn't eat her breakfast, and she spilled on her shoe. And you're like, how did that happen? There is a lot more than meets the eye in this text. And like Sherlock, I would love for us to be looking at some of the key things in this text that allow us to see more than what meets the eye. 
For example, in verse 4, it says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, if you knew something about Jews in that time, they did not like Samaritans. They thought they were unclean. They wouldn't even drink from a cup that a Samaritan had touched. And so most of them would take that long route around Perea. It was longer and it was a harder journey, but to avoid going through Gentile Samaritan country, they would take that long route around. Could it be that Jesus had a different mission, that he had to go through Samaria? In verse 6, it tells us that it was about the sixth hour. Some of your Bibles might say it was noon. Well, noon is the hottest time of the day, as we know, but if you've ever been somewhere hot, you know you avoid doing anything outside, right? You kind of huddle in air conditioning, and you run to a car, and you run into a shopping mall, and you run into a house. This woman was out at noon. And in those days, women would travel in groups to the well. They would go early in the morning or later at night. But here she is alone at the well and carrying water at noon. In verse 7, Jesus asks her for a drink. Give me a drink. But wait a second. There is more than meets the eye on this. There is a lot. I mean, a man talking with a woman? Jesus, you're breaking some rules here. In fact, a Jewish leader would not even talk to a woman in public, even if it was his mom, his sister, his wife, because he would be worried that a bystander would see him and accuse him of adultery. And so here Jesus is talking to a woman in public and at a well. Can you think of anything interesting about a well? It was actually a common place to pick up women at the time. So unless one was looking for a mate, I mean, can you think of some Old Testament stories? Maybe Abraham's servant and Rebecca, or Jacob and Rachel? I mean, Jesus, you should avoid speaking to a woman at a well. And it's public, Jesus, people can see you. Even worse, Jesus' disciples are gone, so he's alone. It's just getting worse. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, asking this woman for water. Is that possible? I mean, I've heard guys don't like asking for directions. I've heard. But here Jesus is asking for help from a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman. Jesus is breaking a lot of rules here to interact with this woman. Let's continue to look at verse 17, Jesus sees more than meets the eye here. I mean, my guess is they didn't have a Facebook status there on her relationship. It's not complicated. My guess is she wasn't wearing a wedding ring because that didn't happen until the Romans introduced that later. So how did Jesus know that she had five husbands previously and she was living with somebody now? There's a lot more than meets the eye. I have no husband as we see, Jesus is talking with a fairly promiscuous woman here. He's breaking a lot of religious codes of that time. Female, she's a Samaritan, and she's had probably a pretty wild life. Isn't this crazy? Jesus, the Son of God, humbling himself to ask this woman, a Samaritan woman, for water. 
and he invites her into conversation. And he's later on, as we'll see, he's going to invite her to so much more, more life, eternal life. You see, he doesn't have a checklist for you to clean up your life before you come to him. He doesn't say, you are invited and you are not. Remember when you were in grade school and the birthday party season was around and someone would hand out invites and they would go to almost everyone in the class, but there were always a couple kids that weren't invited? The good news about Jesus is that all are invited. When society would exclude this woman and push her away, when the other, woman's, uh, the other women would likely talk about her at the well, here she is meeting Jesus at the well and he is inviting her into relationship. Do you see how good that is? It's full of irony, this story, because even at the first verse here, it says the Pharisees were jealous. The religious leaders of the time were jealous that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more than Jesus. And so the religious leaders are in the dark, and yet to this woman, she's starting to understand who God is. And what I love is later on, she becomes a part of sharing God's news to her town. So she is welcome, not based on her living standard, her merit, or her worth, but because God took interest in her. Oh, as I've been thinking about this and reading this this week, my heart is just so full, just seeing a God who loves all of us, who invites us in, not saying, are you good enough, but just come, I invite you. All are invited, and instead of excluding us, we are embraced, we are loved, we are invited into relationships. Just quickly on the screen, Galatians 3 just talks about in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters. In Christ Jesus. This woman has been invited into this. And you see, passionate worship begins with us recognizing that we are not the ones who took initiative with God, but he is the one who has invited us into relationship with him. He has crossed so many barriers for this woman in this story. What barriers has he crossed for you? So we are invited. My second point, we discover. Let's talk about water. A prophet, Duke University, claims that you can go 100 hours without drinking water in an average outdoor temperature. But I want to know, has he ever tried? My guess is not. Well, I, I want to ask if you've ever been really thirsty before. I have a story I want to tell you. It was with my friend a couple years ago, and we were traveling in Turkey, and it was this really cool area called Pamukkale. And tours flocked from all over to come into this, these white calcified cliffs, and the water would come down and just pool. And it was beautiful. See, my friend and I had gotten there early, and all the currency places were closed. And so we dug up literally every Turkish lira we had in our pockets to pay our entrance fee. And we thought we were good. We thought, we were, we thought that, that, yeah, we've got it. We've got food for the day. We're prepped. And so we came in, and we started soaking in these pools. And up above, there's this old city of Heriopolis. And we wandered around there, and we took the stairs up and down, and we saw how far our voice could echo we thought it was all good, except for I started to get really thirsty. And we realized we didn't have any water. I wanted to steal a water, take, borrow a water bottle from a nearby kid, and I couldn't. There was water on the ground, there was water surrounding us, but it wasn't a water that could satisfy. 
Jesus, in Jesus, we discover one who can satisfy our thirst. Jesus tells her in verse 10, if you only knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If she only knew the gift of God, that there was eternal life, that the one she was speaking with was the son of God, he would give her so much more than just the water that was at that well. You see, Jacob had used that water to to that well to water his flocks and his family, but Jesus offered her so much more, something that would quench the thirst, the desire in her to be loved. I mean, it's hard for us in this rainy season in BC to think that water could be a gift, right? We're done with that. But imagine in that time, in that heat, water is such a gift. And even more so in scripture, thirst is a metaphor for spiritual desire. And as I was reading this, the, the words that we read from Isaiah 55 on Easter morning came to mind. It's this call, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, delight yourself in this water, in this rich feast that God has prepared for us. See how often that word come, that invitation is there for us? Come discover You see, there is a feast that has been prepared for us. We eat, we get hungry again, we eat. We thirst, we drink, we go to the bathroom, all right. But then we thirst again. We have to continually drink. But Jesus, in verse 13, says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. There's such a contrast in what we worship. If we worship the temporary, the little fix, the temporary keeps leaving us wanting for more, and so we have to drink again, and we get thirsty again. But there is this huge contrast when we drink of what is going to satisfy us, that there is this eternal satisfaction in Jesus. So to worship is human, What do you worship? What is your ultimate love? What do you spend most of your time thinking about, talking about at parties? Satisfaction is only found in Jesus, and it's in knowing him that we have this, just this knowledge of of Jesus and, and how we can worship him. This woman sees, okay, there must be something here. She's in, and so she turns the conversation In verse 15, sir, give me this water. Smart woman. Jesus tells her, okay, then go call your husband. Um, Jesus, you're stepping on some fragile ground here, isn't he? Five husbands, and the one she's living with is not her husband. How does he know so much about her? Well, she recognizes in verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Good one. (laughs) Yeah, sir, you must be a prophet. You see more than what meets the eye. So she starts asking him a long debated question between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus, where is the proper place to worship? On this mountain or in Mount Gerizim? You see, in those days, it was really important, the location of worship. 
In fact, the higher you were, the closer you were to God. And so altars or shrines or different religious sites would be built on these high-top mountains. The Jews held that the temple, I believe that's, yeah, there we go. The temple was higher than the rest of the world. And in their holy city, that was the holiest place. And that was the only place for worship to happen. But for the Samaritans, it was Mount Gerizim. And it was a site where Moses had blessed the Israelites. And even though the temple at that time when Jesus was speaking to that woman would have been in ruins, they still worshipped there. Scholars think that likely the well is in viewing distance of that ruin. So where to worship? Here? There? Jesus answers her, neither. What? Neither? In the worship war of questions of how we should worship and in what style, Jesus says it's in him and it's by him and it's through him that we worship. No longer a debate between Mount Gerizim or Mount Jerusalem. We find it's in Jesus. We discover that worship is not about the style or where. It's about the who. There's a quote from God Dwells by Mary Callow that says, Because of Jesus' relationship with the Father, the reader is invited to see in the body of the crucified and risen one the new sacred place where God and humanity meet. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. The word made flesh and tabernacled among us. The word that moved into our neighborhoods. The Father seeks true worshipers. It's not about the location. It's about the one we worship. And Jesus goes on to talk about those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In the Greek, there's only one word, in, used in this sentence. So it's not, is it in spirit or is it in truth? But it's in spirit and truth. Those two cannot be divided. It's interesting because the Samaritans only held that the first five books of the Bible were scripture. So when Jesus says, you worship what you don't know, they don't have the breadth that the Jews believed in all of Scripture and which pointed to the Messiah to come. And so he says, I invite you to come know me in truth, which God has primarily revealed in his word and in spirit. You see, God is spirit. We must worship him in spirit. Israel had a little problem with this, right? Could we just construct something we could worship? I mean, that would make it a little easier, wouldn't it? But God cannot be contained in, a, in an idol or in a place. And so he calls those to discover that he can be worshipped in spirit and truth. And that he is one that can satisfy us. Worship becomes gathering around a person, not a place. And it's in Jesus that we find full satisfaction. I found a good quote about dissatisfaction these days. I mean, we have a lot of gadgets and gizmos, right? And we try to fill our lives with these pleasures. The modern world is a study of dissatisfaction. With all its sophisticated pleasures, it's a classic example of boredom. Surely never in the history of the whole human race has there ever been so many ways of attaining pleasure. 
Never have been so bored and unhappy. So what are the things you pursue to satisfy your soul? Why labor on what does not satisfy? Come, drink of something that will satisfy you. Jesus offered this great gift to the Samaritan woman, and he offers it to us today. Living water to quench our thirst. A life of purpose and meaning. It's not a temporary fix, it's a greater solution. When our souls are satisfied in him, our worship is centered around the person of Jesus. There's something so small and significant at, in verse 28. It says, The woman left her water jar and went away into the town. Do you see that? Do you see that the very reason she had come to the well, she now left? She encountered Jesus, and the thing that felt so important was so small. She ran to tell everybody, Look at this good news. It's incredible. So through, through Jesus, we are invited, we discover how God satisfies our thirst, and then we become true worshipers. There's more than meets the eye on this discussion of temple. And if you've traveled a little bit, you will know that many different religions have temples, and they, they house important things. Maybe it's remnants of a king. Maybe it's larger-than-life form of Buddha. Or maybe it's tombs of a saint. Now, I've had a chance to travel to some of these, and you think, are people really worshiping that? That person? And see, there's something absolutely incredible, is that we discover that in Jesus... Now, he saw something moving ahead to the future. He told us that we would be his temple. We become the dwelling place of God, and we become his temple. There's a verse in Corinthians that talks about this, how we become the temple of God. And I can't imagine God using his presence to dwell in us, and there's an incredible call in that as us, where the presence of God mediates, it comes to dwell in us. And now we are called to be people that bring his life, his presence into the world among us. It's incredible. In Christ, we now bring his life into the world. So we become true worshipers. And that place of worship is now not in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim, but the place of worship becomes wherever the believers are. We become the temple of God. In conclusion, on this thought of us becoming the temple, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of the temple in Ezekiel 47, where water flowed out of the entrance to the temple. The water that flowed from the temple, it says, brought much life. You can see here, it talks about all the fish and the waters of the sea. Everything will live where the river goes. And it brought healing, it brought life, it brought abundance, it brought flourishing. 
And now, as temples of God's Holy Spirit, we become mediators of God's life, of God's healing, of God's spirit. We bring this abundant life that he offers us to the world around us. Our life of passionate worship transforms us both individually, but us as a community to be a place of worship. Could you imagine the impact of this in our world as we come together and we are filled up with God's spirit and then as we go out into the community, we bring his life, his worship, his flourishing wherever we go. What does that look like for you in your family? in your workplace, in your school? What does it look like for you to be a true worshiper of Jesus and to carry that life everywhere you go? You see, it's so much more than a song, so much more than just a short amount of time that we call a worship service. It's this all-encompassing life. It's this all-encompassing response to who God is. And I love that God chooses to let his presence, his spirit, dwell with us, his temple. A few weeks ago, a group of friends gathered on a Sunday night to have a night of worshiping God in song and in prayer. And as we were praying for God's kingdom to come to our city, as we were asking God to reveal more of himself, someone had a picture of this dry, parched land just cracked and dry and empty. And he didn't quite get it. And so as we continued to pray and worship, there became a bit of clarity to that picture. Because he saw where that cracked, dry ground had been. There was this huge water pipe just funneling water from this source all along. And what he saw was incredible. There was life, green life. There was colors. There was flourishing everywhere that water went. There was flourishing. Do you get how we are called to bring that life, that flourishing to the world around us, to our families, to our jobs, to our workplaces, to our city, wherever you go? As the people of God, we are called to be passionate worshipers. We are the temple of God, as Ezekiel saw. And that life that he pictured is supposed to be overflowing, abundant out of us. This is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven broken in now, but the full restoration of God's kingdom as we will one day see. Revelation 7 gives us this picture. I love reading Revelation to imagine what will worship be like, where the angels are constantly singing around his throne and we join them and we worship our God together. Revelation 7 talks where we will be fully satisfied. It talks about where we will have no more hunger. We will have no more thirst because we will have the lamb at the center and we will be around the throne of God. And it says, he will lead us to springs of living water, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye. That is a picture of passionate worship. That is a picture that we can hold in our minds and say, 
Lord, that is what we long for. We long to see you in your fullness. So my questions to you this morning. Do you know that you are invited? That God loves to use the least likely? That God invited this woman to be a mouthpiece for him? That he invites you to be a mouthpiece for him as well? Do you know that you are invited, that God initiated, that you could never come up with a checklist and be good enough? That he takes interest in you and he says, come, come, come. Have you discovered that your thirst can be satisfied in Jesus? That you don't have to continually drink again and again? That he offers you something so much more to crave or for your cravings and, and what you desire He wants you to find your full satisfaction and life in him. And have you become a true worshiper of God, worshiping in spirit and truth, to be empowered by his spirit to bring life wherever you go? Love to invite the prayer team to come forward. Would love for us to just soak in this for a minute here as the worship team comes up. God, would you speak to us now? Would you show us how we are all invited? If there are those here this morning who haven't felt like they're invited to the party, Lord, would they um, ask questions on how they can be invited? how you have invited, how you've made a way for us. God, for each of us who thirst, Lord, would you teach us how to thirst and find our hunger met in you, our thirst quenched in you? Would you show us how you invite us to so much more than this world could ever offer us? And Lord, would you show us how we can become true worshipers in spirit and truth to live for you, to find our thirst quenched in you, and to now become a source of your water, of your living water to the world around us, God. We need you, Lord.